0: If you've got a Bible with you, please open up to the book of Philippians. Take us a while to get there, but you'll have it ready. Like Zach said, my name is Ron. I'm the administrative pastor here. Ryan Kelly, our teaching elder, who usually is here, uh, we just wanted to give him a break. He's not sick. He's not out of the country on a missions trip. He's just preached for, I don't know, probably 10, 11 weeks in a row. And so we came to him and said, take a break. So today we're in Philippians, not in the Gospel of Luke. I want to start with a story. This is a true story, and to give you a little background, it's a story about four people that went on a fishing trip. Uh, it's the story of a father. His name is Dr. Phil Littleford. I might call him Dr. Phil, but it's not the TV Dr. Phil. And then he's got his son, Mark, with him, who's 12 years old. And to give you some background, Mark has not yet grown into that adolescent, middle, high school age where he's shooting up and getting more muscular and athletic. He's still kind of in the scrawny, skinny bone stage, okay? So he's not that strong. Uh, That's kind of an important part of the story. And this Dr. Phil is taking two of his friends with him, adult guys, one of which can pilot a small plane. And so they rent a seaplane, a little Cessna with pontoons on it, to go around Alaska on their fishing trip. Their first few days there, they've not caught much of anything. So we're gonna pick up the story there. Disappointed but not discouraged, they had climbed aboard their small seaplane and skimmed over the Alaskan mountains to a pristine, secluded bay where the fish were sure to bite. They parked their aircraft and waded upstream where the water teemed with ready to catch salmon. Later that afternoon, when they returned to their camp, they were surprised to find the seaplane high and dry. The tides fluctuated about 23 feet in that particular bay, and the pontoons rested on a bed of gravel. Since they couldn't fly out until morning, they settled in for the night, enjoyed some of their catch for dinner, then they slept in the plane. In the morning, the seaplane was adrift, meaning, you know, it's floating, it's on water, it's within reach, they can go. So they promptly cranked the engine and started to take off. Too late, they discovered one of the pontoons had been punctured and was filled with water. The extra weight threw the plane into a circular pattern. Within moments from liftoff, the seaplane careened into the sea and capsized. Dr. Phil Littleford determined that everybody was okay, including his 12 year old son, Mark. He suggested they pray, which the other two adults quickly endorsed. No safety equipment could be found on board. No life-preservers, no flares, nothing. The plane gurgled and submerged into the blackness of the icy morning sea. Fortunately, they all had waders, so they inflated those, you know, threw those around their neck. The frigid Alaskan water chilled their breath. They all began to swim for shore, but the tide countered every stroke. The two men alongside Phil and Mark were strong swimmers, and they both made shore one just catching the tip of land as the tides pulled Dr. Phil and his son out towards sea. Their two companions last saw Phil and Mark as a disappearing dot on the horizon swept arm in arm out to sea. The Coast Guard reported that they probably lasted no longer than an hour or two in the freezing waters. Hypothermia would chill the body functions and they would go to sleep. Mark with the smaller body mass first in his father's arms um, and then the father. Phil could have made the shoreline. He was a strong swimmer but that would have meant abandoning his son. Their bodies were never found. Now, sorry to give you kind of a, a sober, very serious and sad story, a true story to start out today. But it illustrates how committed and faithful and loyal family members are. I mean, I'm looking at the faces of dozens of dads and one or two dads-to-be, and we would all do the same for our son or daughter. We wouldn't leave them. The book of Philippians is in large part about church life, and that's going to get pictured as close friendships and family relationships. One family relationship in particular that we're going to get to later So today we're doing an overview of Philippians. Now, we could approach that overview from maybe four or five different perspectives. We could talk about suffering because that comes up repeatedly in Philippians. We could talk about Philippians as a kind of last will and testament of Paul to the church because he's within a few years of dying. In fact, it's, I think, the second to last book he wrote before dying. He's in prison. He's in jail. So there's this interesting mix of Paul who has hopes for the future, hopes for the church at Philippi, hopes for himself. At the same time, he says very clearly, I desire to be with Christ. So he's also ready to die. Uh, some people say joy or rejoicing is the key theme in the book of Philippians. And indeed, if you kind of circle or underline those words, joy or rejoicing or variants variant of those words, I think you'd come up with 15, 17, 18 times they occur. Um, I'd recommend you do this if you want to learn more about Philippians. Our teaching elder, Ryan, did a whole series on this book, pretty much a verse-by-verse verse series about four or five years ago. At least go back on the website and listen to the very first sermon in that series, because what he says is, yeah, joy and rejoicing are there, but there's something that's more present in this book, and it's the idea of being in Christ. And I had never thought of that before, listening to that sermon. I think he's right. If there's a general rubric or umbrella over which everything in Philippians goes, it could be in Christ. We come across that repeatedly, sometimes in Him, capital H, or through Him, through Christ. So let me give you today a pretty good theme under that. And that is the life of the church. What it means to be in Christ as close friends and family within a church setting. So, first part of that is we're going to look at friendship. And we'll do that by reading the first few verses in Philippians. Now, as we look at friendship, I almost want to use that word close again and talk about close friendship. Because friendship gets thrown around all over the place these days. We're not talking about the friendship of Facebook here, okay? Uh, I think my kids have maybe 500 friends on Facebook. And you know what that really means? Probably 480 of those are friends of friends of friends. That's what it means. They might not even have met some of these people whose names and faces appear in their Facebook list of friends. So Paul will help us maybe redefine that a little bit more. But let's start with number one, friendship. And let's read chapter one, starting at verse one. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, Always offering prayer with joy. There's that word joy or rejoicing. In my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel. From the first day until now. (laughs) Now go back to verse 1. I want you to see to whom this is addressed. It's the saints in the church of Philippi. That's all of you guys. Believers. And it's to the overseers and deacons. Now here at Desert Springs, the way we look at our Bible, we see the word overseer as synonymous, meaning the same thing as pastor, meaning the same thing as elder. So for us, those are just three different ways of describing a pastor. So you've got the church, the believers, the pastors, and then the deacons, the second spiritual office of the church. Here's what's interesting about that. This is the only letter of Paul where in his greeting, his opening, he mentions overseers and deacons. Later, on your own, if you like studying the Bible, and hopefully we all do, if you look at Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians, in those first one or two verses, you're gonna see they're addressed to the church or to the saints who are in this particular city. So I think we're getting a hint, even early on, in the book of Philippians, that this is about church life. It's about all of us and how we relate to one another. Not so much mentioning elders because of government or finances or a building program. This is gonna be more relational stuff that we're gonna see. But again, we're under this heading of close friendship right now. Look at the end of verses one through five that we read through. Verse five, in view of your participation in the gospel, from the first day until now. So after Paul gives a greeting, verses one and two. what's the first thing that he does? Look at verses three and four, he prays. And OK, what does he start that prayer out with? He starts out with thanksgiving. Okay, that's so pretty general. Um, what is he thankful for? He's thankful for their participation. So here's our first word for close friendship. Word number one, participation. Chapter 1, verse 5. You may have heard the Greek term before. It's the Greek term koinonia. I think the ESV has partnership here. Many translations have fellowship. I kind of like partnership the best. Okay, let's keep going in Philippians because we're doing kind of an overview this morning. Look at verse 7. Paul says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So here's a second word. It's at the end of that verse. It's the word partakers. A different Greek word. Kind of, this is going to be our word number two, not koinonia, a different word. And the NIV has here, you share in God's grace with me. Let's keep going. Later on in chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, there's our key expression there, for the faith of the gospel. The ESV has striving side by side here. The idea is a plurality, many people, but one purpose. This expression, striving together, occurs only one other time in the whole New Testament. It's here in the book of Philippians. So let's turn if you've got a Bible on your lap. If not, just check out the center screen and see where that is. Look at chapter four. It's gonna appear in verse three. We'll start at verse two. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Stop there for a minute. These are two ladies And they're not just any ladies. They're not just rank and file, sit in a pew or in a chair, ladies that are going to have some kind of conflict. They're really leaders in the church at Philippi. We'll see that in the next verse. Paul said, they've shared with me in the ministry of the gospel. And they've come into some kind of conflict. So let's read on. Verse 3, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Together with Clement, also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In the middle of verse 3, at least in the New American Standard, you'll see the words shared my struggle. It's the same word we had back in chapter 1. But here's what's cool now that we're in verse 3, stay there, look at that verse, and are there other words or expressions that have to do with shared life? partnership, participating together, what we're going to call close friendship. Hopefully you'll see a few. At the end of verse 3, there's the expression fellow workers. I'm sorry, let's go back up to the beginning of verse 3. I missed one already. At the beginning of verse 3, in the third word in the New American Standard, we've got the word companion. We're going to call this word number four, a different Greek word. Not quininea, not one of the other ones, a word companion. Some older translations have the word yoke fellow for this. I know it sounds like Old English and it is, but the NIV and the King James have this word yoke fellow. And what's a yoke fellow? Well, you're supposed to picture two oxen, maybe it's like the Old West here in New Mexico in the 1800s, two oxen, they're pulling a cart or a wagon, but the two oxen are joined by a thick wood yoke this kind of bar that's carved out a little bit for their shoulders and their neck. And that does a couple things. It joins the two ox together, uh, and they have to go in the same direction, right? You can't have one going to the right and one going to the left. So unity of purpose there, and it lightens the load. It makes it less laborious to pull this heavy wagon or cart. So word number four, companion, companion. But later in verse 3, there's yet another word that has to do with close friendship. It's way at the end, and it's the word or the expression fellow workers. Fellow workers is the Greek word sunergos, S-U-N like sun, E-R-G-O-S. Does sunergos sound like any English word you might know? We get our word synergy from it. What is synergy? Energy, the ability to do something, to accomplish something, that comes from more than one person or source. Okay, I think we've exhausted, at least on a superficial level, verse three. This word sunergos occurs one more time in Philippians. Let's see where. Flip back, if you've got a Bible, to chapter two. And verse 25. Paul says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So we'll hit pause right there. Epaphroditus is a go-between that the church at Philippi sends to Paul. Paul is in prison, remember? So they send this guy Epaphroditus with a care package, basically. Maybe some food, maybe some writing instruments or some scrolls, um, and maybe a letter from themselves. Epaphroditus, maybe an elder at Philippi, brings that to Paul. So that's what Epaphroditus is. Paul's going to send him back to the church as well. So let's go back to the beginning of verse 25, chapter two, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, there's our same expression, Sunergas, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need." Now let's stay in verse 25. "Aside from fellow worker, there are more expressions of close friendship in this verse. Do you see them? Right after fellow worker, we're going to call this word number six. Yet a sixth word, different word in Greek. We've got fellow soldier. Fellow soldier only occurs twice in the whole New Testament. Once here. And then did you see the other one? Before fellow worker, we've got the term brother. We're going to call that word number seven. Now, although words one through six, not all that frequent in the New Testament, our seventh word brother, all over the place. Dozens and dozens of times, usually in the plural, as in brother or brethren. So we're done with our little survey of close friendship terms and expressions. Now we want to pick up on brother and talk about family relations. So for this, let's look at chapter 4. We looked at verses 2 and 3 already. Now I want you to see verse 1 of chapter 4. Let me read it for you. Therefore, my beloved brethren, here's our term, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Man, there are terms of endearment all over that verse. Do you see the word beloved twice? And it's all focused around that word, brothers. And we could say brothers and sisters. This is not meant for the male gender only. So. Of all the pictures that Paul has to pick from, he picks the family. And think of a family for a minute. You've got a lot of relations in a family. Mother, father, children, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents. Of all those relations, he picks siblings. So here's the deal. Siblings, usually represented as the word brothers, is the dominant, the primary word picture used in the New Testament for the church, for you and I, for all of us gathered together here. Now, there are other word pictures. Let me give you a couple, but I want to show you kind of numerically, statistically, how big brothers is, this idea of siblings. The Bible, even Paul, uses the picture of the church as the bride of Christ. Church is the bride, Jesus is the bridegroom that describes part of our relationship with Christ. Paul uses that two times. So is it significant? Yes. Is it repeated, common? Does he go back to that well again and again? No, he doesn't. Uh, the New Testament talks about us, the church, as the temple for the living God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We collectively are where God loves to dwell, just like he loved to dwell in the physical temple in Jerusalem in Old Testament days. In our time period, he loves to dwell in the church. God dwells everywhere. There's no place where God is not. But in some sense, he dwells in a deeper sense here right now, this room, this service, than he does in the stars or among the pines of the San Juan National Forest in southern Colorado. And he takes joy in dwelling here. Paul uses the expression or the picture of the temple three times. Uh, the New Testament talks about us as priests. This was a big clarion call of the Reformation. All believers are priests, the priesthood of all believers. We don't have to go through someone to get to God. Christ provided a way to go directly to the Father. So that's a picture. Now, you might picture a priest as different than when Jews of the first century pictured a priest, but the point is you can picture what a priest is. Paul doesn't use the word picture of priest at all. We come across it in 1 Peter chapter 2, several times in the book of Revelation. So bride or temple or priests, those, any one of those you can count on one hand. They're significant, important, yes. Are they repeated in common? No. Brothers, as a picture for church, occurs in the letters. So this is after the Gospels and Acts 180 times. So compare 180 verses 2 or 3. Brethren or brothers and sisters is the primary dominant picture that the New Testament uses for what we are. Okay, here's my problem with that. And it's a problem of of culture and experience and history. My wife and I spent 18 years in Virginia. Um, If you've not been out east, Virginia is the south. It's upper south. It's not deep south, but it is the south. Uh, There's a Baptist church pretty much on every block. And it's Bible Belt. It's very, very conservative. And we spent a few years in a Baptist church. And um, I'll never forget, usually it's older generations, but guys would come up to me and they'd call me Brother Ron. So they'd come up and go, Brother Ron, can you help set up some chairs for this service tonight? Oh, sure. And to be honest with you guys, I didn't like that. Um, Is it biblical? Of course. So I feel kind of guilty saying I didn't like it. But... um, Number one, it felt like it was real quick, real trite, real flippant. Um, Number two, I don't have the best, closest relationship with my only sibling, who is a brother. And so for a couple reasons, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. What I want to try to show you in the next few minutes is that we've got to get rid of our idea of siblings, whether good or bad, from our culture and try to understand what a brother meant in the first century the ancient world of a Mediterranean family. Mediterranean meaning any of the countries or nations around the Mediterranean Sea. So here's my attempt at doing that for you. Brother occurs nine times in Philippians. We've seen two of them already. But instead of looking at the other seven, I think it's going to be a better use of our time to see what it means. So let's make up a person. We're going to call her Sarah. Okay? Sarah grows up. She's got parents and siblings. Here is the first principle for family relations in Sarah's family and in any family in the first century around the Mediterranean. Here's principle number one. The bloodline of the father is everything. Principle number one. Bloodline of the father is everything. There is no principle number two. There you have it. That's what family relations are built on. So let's think about this for a few minutes. With whom does Sarah share the bloodline of her father? Well, the obvious answer to that I know is her father. But aside from that, she shares it with her siblings, her brothers and sisters. Don't forget our first principle, the bloodline of the father is everything. Now let's grow Sarah up and get her married to a guy named Jared. Two good Hebrew names. So What happens now if there's conflict that develops between Jared, Sarah's husband, and Sarah's sister Leah, or one of Sarah's brothers? Let's pretend a little bit further. What if that conflict becomes very heated and pointed, and it cannot be resolved? And Sarah is living in chaos, and she cannot keep living the way she's living because of this unresolved conflict between her husband and her siblings. Now, in most cases, in our culture, we would say the spouse wins out for sure. There's no debate about that. I know that's not true across the board, but in in most cases, we would say the spouse wins out. Not so in first century. In most cases, the siblings win out. Why? Because they share the blood of her father. That is a commitment that can never be broken, nor should anyone want to break it. So... um, I'm not saying that's the way things should be. That's certainly not the way things Jesus wanted them to be. That's the way things were. In fact, Jesus tried to reclaim marriage from this relationship of convenience, where a man could easily divorce his wife. And wives were good for what in the first century, outside of the views of Jesus? Keeping a kitchen, keeping a house, and having kids. And you know what? If they had kids... To which family did they really belong? The husband's family or the wife's family? The husband's family, because the bloodline of the father is everything. Jesus tried to redeem that by saying, one man, one woman, one lifetime, a partnership, worshiping God together. So I'm not saying that's the way things should be. I'm saying that's the way things were. When Paul looked for an illustration of the church, he looked around him in his day, what he saw was the strong, bond of commitment between siblings. So here's how it goes. Go back to Sarah. Sarah is hurting. Her siblings will share her hurt and gather around her. Sarah is joyful or victorious about something. Her siblings will share that joy and gather around her. Sarah is ashamed or humiliated in some sense. Her siblings will gather around her and either defend her Or if she's what we would call sinning, they would confront her lovingly and try to lift her up out of that sin. Sarah needs to grow in some manner. Maybe she needs some kind of education. Her siblings will gather around her and make it a group project, even if that means sacrificing out of their own finances. Jared, Sarah's husband, may or may not do any of those things. Her siblings will. Number one, they're required to, they're mandated to. The father would not allow anything else to happen. He would insist that her brothers and sisters gather around her. But you know what? Even if the father was dead and didn't require it, they'd want to do that. I'm not saying 100% of the time in the first century this happened. But as a norm, this is what happened. They would want to gather around Sarah if she was in need. Again, the husband may or may not do that. He can divorce her if he wants. Siblings would never think of abandoning their sister. So for a number of reasons Paul looks to siblings and he says you know what that's like in our world? It should be even more so like that in the church. That kind of commitment should be between us in a figurative sense. All right. so we're done with family which specifically is the idea of siblings and what that meant in Bible days that's what we should read when we hear Paul. So, am I going to go around and call you guys brothers and sisters? Um, No, I'm not going to go up and say, I don't know, Brother David or Brother Andrew or something like that. But I'll tell you what I do when I walk into a community group or a Bible study, I think brothers and sisters. I think that first century image that Paul wants us to think about. And I ask myself, am I treating them that way? Or am I treating them like a little social club and like friends in the modern Facebook sense of the word? All right, on to the third and final part of today's message. So how do close friends and family treat each other? What do they do? Let's look at Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, verse three. Paul says here, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than our, yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So, this is what close friends and family do they look out for the interests of others. Here's what's cool Paul will illustrate that with five different people in the next two chapters. Let's read on in chapter 2. He'll start with Jesus himself as an illustration of what this means. So verse 5 of chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it goes on to talk about Jesus. Why is this here in chapter 2? Is it theology about Jesus to prove his deity? That's all true. It's there to teach us about who Jesus is. The real reason it's there is to illustrate what Paul says early in chapter 2. In fact, Paul's going to do this again and again and again. Again. So let's look later in chapter 2. Here's one more example of how Paul does that. Starting at verse 19, let's read. We're going to read about Timothy, Paul's colleague here. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. They, we're not sure who they are, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his, this is Timothy, his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. Now he could have just said in a few words, by the way, I'm gonna send my colleague Timothy to you shortly. I'm trying to send Epaphroditus real quick. A little bit later, I'm going to send Timothy, but he doesn't. He slows the pace down, proceeds to tell them and remind them Timothy lives out, exemplifies, illustrates this idea I talked about earlier about putting the interests of others above your own. So we're kind of done with our survey. Let me try to start wrapping things up and applying them. Let me give you two more tidbits about the New Testament. Paul uses the expression, my Lord, Lord, capital L, talking about Jesus. He uses the expression, my Lord, one time in all of his letters. So that focused on his personal, private, individual relationship, vertical relationship with Jesus. He uses the expression, our Lord, over 50 times. And you guys know what our means. We're part of a group. Now, if the letters of the New Testament are written for us, for the church and for us as individuals, if they kind of apply the Gospels, think about that for a minute. I wonder if, as Western evangelical Christians, we've got things flipped. If we would talk 50 times about my Lord, my God, my relationship with him, my, 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 for every one time that we talk about Christ being Lord of a group, whether that's three guys having coffee or 12 couples in a community group. Here's a question for you, so second and last tidbit. Don't answer out loud, just think. How many of Paul's letters do you think were written to and for individuals? Let me define what that means. Written to an individual means it'll be written to one person. So was Philippians written to an individual? We know that wouldn't qualify So we read the first verse. It was to the saints, the overseers, the deacons. So no way is Philippians written to an individual. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, those are all churches. They all have church or saints, um, not individuals' names. Here's what I mean by for an individual, though. So written to an individual and written for an individual. How many letters do you think were written? Not only two, but four, meaning I'm going to write to you pretending I'm Paul, and this is all going to be about your relationship with God. I'm going to give you some advice, some wisdom, maybe share some personal experience. I'm going to try to help you grow as an individual in your relationship. Now, if I'm trying to make this into a trick question, which I am, now you can maybe guess at the answer. I'm going to say none. First and second Timothy and Titus were written to individuals, But if you read through that, there's very little, there's some, but there's very little about their individual relationship with their God. There's a lot about encouraging them to be pastors and leaders in a church setting. There's more about the group than the individual. Philemon seems like it's written to an individual. It's got an individual's name. I mean, Philemon isn't a city, it's a guy. But if you read the first few verses of that letter, it's written to some other names besides Philemon and to the church that meets in Philemon's house. And it's all about relational stuff. So Paul is not writing to Philemon saying, I've heard you've struggled in a couple areas, let me give you some advice. So part of the point here is, man, we can't be Lone Ranger Christians. We can't say, uh, it's my individual, private relationship that counts. Church is optional. And community groups or Bible studies, those are certainly optional, just if I have time for that kind of stuff. Let me ask you to do one thing. I want you to answer a question, and if your answer is one of three answers, I'm going to actually ask you to write out an answer. Here's my question for all of us. If you're a member or regular attender here at DSC, do you view people here at church as your brothers and sisters, your siblings, in the ancient Mediterranean family sense of the word? I'm not saying do you know everybody. If I were to say, do you think of everyone here as your brother and sister in that sense, we'd all say no. I haven't even met everyone that's a member here at Desert Springs. I mean, are there four, eight, a dozen, 20 people that you would say, in, in the sense you describe, when you talked about this girl Sarah, this lady, and her relationship with her brothers and sisters, I have that relationship with people here at church your answer is either going to be no, yes, or in the middle somewhere. Like, it's happening Ron. I I joined a community group six months ago, and I'm beginning to get to know those people. I don't know if I'd say it completely fits the bill, but I also wouldn't say no, that people are just acquaintances here, and they're just names and faces, and it's just a social thing I do on Sunday morning. If your answer is no, then sometime, and you've got more minutes while I talk, we're doing a final song. Nothing else. Sit back in your chair at the end of the service. If your answer is no, take a few minutes and fill out the tear-off card in your bulletin. So maybe put your name, a phone, an email. Maybe you'd say Ron, or you could address that to any elder here, or just leaders in general. So you could say, you know, I've I've tried getting in uh, what you used to call home groups, but my only night is Thursday night. I work the PM shift, through to eleven and you don't have any groups on Thursday night, but I I really want what Paul talks about when he talks about this family relationship. Can you guys help me? We'll get back to in a few days. I don't know that we can solve it in a few days, but we'll get back to in a few days, and we'll work on it. And hopefully in a few weeks or a few months, if we have to, we'll make something happen Thursday night. We'll start a new group then. If your answer is yes... I do have that with people here at church. Then I'd encourage you, whether it's a community group or a Bible study or just regular coffee with some you know, guys if you're a man or women if, if you're a lady, um, explore whether you're treating each other as, as brothers and sisters. Are you looking at the one another's of the New Testament and practicing them? Here's a final suggestion. First suggestion is adopt siblings here in the church because that's what Paul talks about, Jesus as well. Read through Matthew 18, which is kind of a manual for the church. You'll see the word brother occur occur all over the place. So task number one, adopt brothers and sisters here in church. And if you need help, ask us. That's what we're here for. Task number two, adopt somebody outside of your church. See, say, wow, how do I do that? Well, there are believers all over the world In fact, there's a chance today for you to adopt a son or a daughter, figuratively speaking, a brother or a sister, spiritually speaking. Compassion International has a booth out in our foyer. Uh, Compassion is an organization that allows you to adopt uh, a child, not literally bring him into your home, but you'll pay between 30 and $40 a month and be able to provide food, medical care, education to that kid on a daily basis. You know, some are Christians, some are not. I mean, the hope is, I mean, they'll hear the gospel. The hope is they'll become a brother or sister to you. But what a great chance to adopt a sister or brother or potential sister or brother, even today as you walk out into the foyer.